Welcome to Snap Sessions, an episodic podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name's Doug Nunn. I'm joined by Techmeister Marshall Downtown Brown and voiceover colossus Ken Krause, and by our artist of the show. Our guest this episode is award-winning Brazilian novelist Carol Ben-Simone, whose novel, We All Loved Cowboys, is available in English. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. We're coming on the air this morning with breaking news from Dayton, Ohio, a second mass shooting in the United States in less than 24 hours. 15 to 20 people were killed in a mass shooting in El Paso. It happened at a Walmart store. Guns in the USA. Here we go again. Sheriff here revealing the worsening toll, at least 59 now dead, more than 500 injured. We have breaking news about that deadly mass shooting in a Southern California bar. The Ventura County Sheriff says a gunman opened fire inside as it was crowded with more... Guns in the USA. An exhausting subject. We included the observations of Australian comic Jim Jeffries in our very first Snap Sessions episode. As far as I'm concerned, there are few people who have done a better job in their analysis of the absurdity of American attitudes toward guns, and nobody in a funnier way. But don't give me this other bullshit. The main one is I need it for protection. I need to protect me, I need to protect my family. Really? Is that why they're called assault rifles? Is it? Never heard of these fucking protection rifles you speak of. <laughs> protection? What the fuck are you talking about? You, you have a gun in your house, they, you're 80% more likely to use that gun on yourself than to shoot someone else. And people think, well, that'd never happen to me. You don't know that, because you know what? From time to time, we all get sad. <laughs> Sadly, Jim Jeffries has been unable to weaponize jokes to stop gun violence in the United States. Witness El Paso and Dayton. And it shows no signs of going away. I actually wondered for a few minutes if the slaughter of a few dozen five- and six-year-olds at Sandy Hook Elementary back in December 2012 would actually make a difference. But the combined strength of the NRA and the ossified nature of Republican senators and representatives has made this impossible. From my cold, dead hands. So, let's take a look at some basics. The United States has slightly less than 5% of the world's population, but somewhere between 35 and 50% of the world's civilian firearms. Around 2011, according to Small Arms Survey research notes, the U.S. had between 270 and 310 million civilian firearms. In second place was India, which has a billion people, with 46 million, and China, which has 1.3 billion people, was third, with 40 million and Germany a distant fourth with 25 million. By 2018, the same small arms survey had made adjustments and asked a follow-up question. How many guns per 100 people? The USA recorded 120.5 guns per 100 residents, followed by Yemen with 52. Remember, they are having a civil war. And then Serbia and Montenegro, remember they were at war in the 90s, with 39.1 firearms per 100 people. 
In the realm of homicides by firearms per 1 million people, the U.S. leads with 29.7 per million, almost four times as many per capita as number two Switzerland, six times as many as Canada, and 15 times as many as Germany. Attempted suicide by guns is, of course, highly effective, with white males being most successful. According to the John Hopkins Center for Gun Policy and Research, from 2009 to 2015, non-Hispanic white men accounted for 92% of all suicides in this country, despite accounting for only 35% of the population. The United States does not have higher crime rates than other industrialized countries. According to the famous Zimring and Hawkins study from the turn of the century, crime is not the problem. 2000. Compared with 1993, the peak of U.S. gun homicides, the firearm homicide rate was 49% lower in 2010, and there were fewer deaths, even though the nation's population grew. The victimization rate for other violent crimes with a firearm, assaults, robberies, and sex crimes, was 75% lower in 2011 than in 1993. So there is not an increasing crime problem. And unless you are Wayne LaPierre of the NRA, this kind of third world carnage has become absolutely normal. There is zero statistical evidence of one. According to Rolling Stone magazine, between 2004 and 2013, U.S. deaths by gunfire on U.S. soil accounted for 316,545 people. And all American deaths by terrorism accounted for just 314 people. PolitiFact fact-tested the following quote by PBS Mark Shields just after Sandy Hook in December 2012. Quote, Since 1968, more Americans have died from gunfire than died in all the wars of this country's history. True. We tallied about 1.4 million firearm deaths compared with 1.2 million in war. The number of gunfire deaths includes suicide. Now that's American exceptionalism. There are now more than 640 million small arms in circulation in the world. The United States produces the vast majority of the world's firearms. It's also the world's leading weapons exporter by far. America exported $336.5 million worth of firearms in 2011, according to customs data compiled by the Norwegian Initiative on Small Arms Transfers, December 3, 2012. The U.S. and Russia combined account for more than half of the world's weapons exports. According to CIPRI's calculations, the United States alone accounts for 31% of the world's arms exports, and Russia accounts for 27%. Behind those two frontrunners... China, Germany, and France all come in at 5%. Clearly, there's quite the rift. How powerful is the gun-making industry in the U.S.? $6 billion is the estimated revenue generated by the U.S. gun and ammunition industry, according to an analysis by business research firm Hoover's. 209,750 is the number of jobs related to the firearm industry in 2012, according to the National Shooting Sports Foundation, which estimates that $9.8 billion in wages are earned annually. Holy shit! shit, shit, shit. And there was a 30% increase in employment in the industry between 2008 and 2011, according to the National Shooting Sports Foundation. White men comprise the majority of U.S. gun owners, and particularly the majority of so-called super gun owners, 
whose firearm collections include between 8 and 140 handguns and long guns. What do you need? Guns. Lots of guns. A 2017 analysis published in JAMA found that gun violence was the least researched major cause of death in the U.S., as measured by the number of papers published and the second least funded cause of death related to its death toll. Well, it is true to say that we don't know. Gun regulation is such a politically sensitive question in the U.S. that there has long been a congressional ban on funding for research on the health impact of firearms. It was as if someone placed a silencer on knowledge. The NRA regularly has a wank (laughs) about the ostensible sanctity of the Second Amendment. Here's how Amendment 2 of the United States Constitution Bill of Rights reads. Quote, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. End quote. But what does this really mean? Huh? Please tell me. Because it seems like two unconnected clauses to me. Does it mean a well-regulated militia? Or that everyone can own as many guns as they want? Or does it mean both? Most judges and scholars who debated the clauses awkwardly worded and oddly punctuated 27 words in the decades before District of Columbia versus Heller almost always arrived at the opposite conclusion, finding that the amendment protects gun ownership for purposes of military duty and collective security. It was drafted, after all, in the first years of post-colonial America, an era of scrappy citizen militias, where the idea of a standing army, like that of the just-expelled British, evoked deep mistrust. Let's let Australian comic Jim Jeffries take you home. I understand that to Americans your constitution is very important. Uh, I respect it, but please understand that every country has one as well. It's no more special than any other constitution. We have one in Australia. I don't know what it says. (laughs) I've never seen it. If there's a problem, we'll check it, but everything's going fine. (laughs) And don't get me wrong, I get that the constitution's important to you. I have had fucking... I get it, right? I've had people come up to me in my face and scream at me in car parks as I'm going, leaving the theatre, going, you cannot change the Second Amendment. And I'm like, yes, you can. It's called an amendment. Like, if you can't change something, it's called an amendment. See, many of you need a thesaurus more than you need a constitution. If you don't know what the source is, get a dictionary, work your way forward. Boyan Schlatt, Eco Warrior. Once there was a Stone Age, a Bronze Age, and now we are in the middle of the Plastic Age. Because every year we produce about 300 million tons of plastic, and a fraction of that enters rivers, waterways, and eventually the oceans. If we want to eat a biscuit nowadays. We have to buy a biscuit within a plastic wrapper, within a plastic tray, within a cardboard box, within some plastic foil, within a plastic bag. It's not hazardous nuclear waste, it's a biscuit. And um, while uh, the, the debris primarily collects at these five rotating currents, called the gyres, where 
it doesn't only directly kill sea life, but due to the absorption of PCBs and DDTs, also poisons the food chain. A food chain that includes us, humans. Why don't we just clean it up? Yes, why don't we? That, my friends, was Boyan Schlott, a young Dutchman, a college dropout, and an eco-warrior. Boyan Schlott has been working on a device to rid the oceans of plastic gyres, those swirling piles of man-made products that are polluting the oceans to the point that soon the weight of that plastic will be greater than the weight of all marine life. Whoa, this is heavy. Boyan Schlott, with the mind of an engineer and the heart of an environmentalist, is working to change all that. Slot appeared on the scene back in 2012 as a 17-year-old when he became famous for that TED Talk when he told us about a scuba diving trip he took to Greece in high school where he saw more plastic than fish. Plastic that fooled him and his friends into thinking it was jellyfish. Instead of moping around about it, Slot came up with an idea to build a machine to rid the oceans of plastic. And inspired by my diving at the Azores... It now actually seems that the best shape for these platforms is that of a manta ray. By letting its wings sway like a real manta, we can ensure contact of the inlets with the surface, even in the roughest weather. According to The New Yorker, Schlott soon crowdfunded $2 million from donors in 160 countries. To date, Schlott has hired 80 employees and raised some $40 million from donors online, charitable foundations, the Dutch government, a few anonymous Europeans, and Silicon Valley billionaires like Peter Thiel and Mark Benioff. After many iterations and scale model tests of his invention, he and his team settled on a design. And Schlott began work on one potential manta ray-shaped floating plastic cleanup machine after another. One of the early versions was nicknamed Boomy McBoomface, after Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> no, 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 no. It was torn apart in North Sea Trials. The next one was named Wilson, after Tom Hanks' imaginary friend in Castaway. Slot's original idea, using the ocean's currents to do the work of collecting trash, has remained the foundation of his design, but almost everything else has changed. His first blueprint, presented to the TEDx talk in 2012, owed more to science fiction than to reality a chain of manta ray-shaped stations that would passively funnel trash into their bellies. In this model, an underwater system of mooring lines would anchor the entire structure to the seabed, 15,000 feet below. Models and prototypes showed a sweeper, traveling about 15 centimeters per second faster than the plastic, and collecting 2.2 metric tons of trash per week. There would be GPS trackers, cameras, and sensors positioned every 100 meters along the length of the boom to the team on shore. At regular intervals, a ship would transport the trash back to land where it would be recycled. Slot expressed the hope that by 2020, there would be 60 devices in the gyre, and in five years, they would remove half the trash. Slot was dreaming of clearing 90% of the North Pacific gyre by 2040. What a challenge! According to The New Yorker, 
By the mid-1960s, 15 million tons of plastic were being produced every year. By 2015, the annual total was nearly 30 times greater. Of all the plastic waste ever created, only about 9% has been recycled. 79% rests forgotten in landfills, dumps, forests, rivers, and the ocean. In recent years, less than 15% of the plastic packaging produced annually has been recycled, the sort of figure that has led Jane Munka, the director of Zurich's Food Packaging Forum, to describe recycling as the fig leaf of consumerism. And in that North Pacific gyre, only one of five in our oceans, mind you, The study found that 92% of the pieces are large fragments and objects, toothbrushes, bottles, umbrella handles, toy guns, jerry cans, laundry baskets. Most problematic and accounting for half of the plastic mass in the gyre are what sailors call ghost nets. You best start believing in ghost stories. You're in one. Great tangles of mile-long discarded fishing nets weighing as much as two tons, which can ensnare animals such as seals and sea turtles. Attempting to fish out this drifting morass of trash using conventional methods, vessels, more nets, would be a Sisyphean task. A Sisyphean task? Too great a burden for flyweights. But here's what I like about Boyan Slot. His dream of a cleaner ocean is worth believing in. His goals are worth achieving. And he's going back to the drawing board to do something about it. First stop, another sobering talk with those engineers. They did not look cheerful. The lead engineer said they had been running some new tests. They had not properly accounted for the power of wave drift force, the accelerating energy of the surface waves absorbed by the device, which would cancel out the drag of the anchors. The design would not work. Slot recalls the engineer saying, we're going to have to do it slightly differently. There were some possible solutions, the engineer said. How about losing the anchors, allowing the device to race after the trash? Slot grew very quiet. It was a bit stressful, he said. Like, whoops. I think I made a Slot's engineers developed 27 hypotheses to explain why this happened. Wilson was moving too slowly, sometimes slower than the plastic. Perhaps the surface plastic was more affected by the wave drift force than they had calculated. Or perhaps an inertial current, one much smaller and more localized than the main one that they had accounted for, was slowing Wilson's motion. This, of course, was something we never saw in the computer models. Warning! Warning! Which underlines why it's so important that we're out there, Slot said, when I met him in New York again just before Christmas. Slot's organization, Ocean Cleanup, strikes me as unsinkable. Don't pardon the pun. Their website acknowledges the realities they face. Of course, this mission will not be easy. Designing a cleanup system that can last many years in one of the most challenging environments on this planet while safely and efficiently collecting plastic is a grand engineering challenge. While researching her article on slot, Carolyn Corman of The New Yorker talked to Chris Garrett, a physical oceanographer and an emeritus professor at the University of Victoria. He and other scientists pointed to additional phenomena, Stokes Drift, Longmuir Circulation, Ekman Spiral, that could cause the plastic to move faster than Wilson. Spinrad described the ocean cleanup system as medium-level technology with a high risk and a high payoff. The sea is an unrelenting trial judge, he said. The probability of failure was at least as high as the probability of success. 
He added, I see nothing that cannot be remediated with good physics and engineering and money. Nothing that cannot be remediated with good physics, engineering, and money. And Slot told Forbes magazine, We think the fastest way to clean the ocean is to learn by doing. We didn't plan for it to break, but we always accounted for a possibility to take the system back in and out several times during this project. He's seen recent headlines that the project has stopped or failed. Of course, that's rubbish, Slot said. This is just a bump on the road to success. You go, boy and slot. We need eco-warriors like you. So does Mother Earth. You may play the race horse, You may own a race track. You may have enough money, baby. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us on Patreon. We depend on the support of listeners like you. And now our interview with Brazilian novelist Carol Ben-Simon. It's great to have Carol Ben-Simon for our um, Snap Sessions podcast uh, interview. Welcome, Carol. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And um, how do you say welcome in Portuguese? Bem-vindo. Bem-vindo. Yeah. Okay, good. So like bienvenuto or something. So great. Uh-huh. Bem-vindo. <laughs> so I am delighted that you're here. Carol is a novelist in Brazil, and she has written uh, a number of books. And one of them is, is out in English now. It's called We All Loved Cowboys. And it was a really great book. And I learned a lot about Southern Brazil. Oftentimes, when you we Americans think of Brazil, you think of the Amazon you think of Rio de Janeiro, mm-hmm. you think of maybe Brazil 66 and Sergio Mendes, you know, yeah, Pele, of course. Mm-hmm. You think of all these giant Carnival. things. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> okay. And um, But I did not know much about southern Brazil, where you come from. And mm-hmm. I, in the book I read, you grew up around Porto Alegre. And I just wondered, what was it like growing up in southern Brazil? Was it is it as hot as in the north? Tell us a little bit about no, growing up there. No, actually, I think it's far from the Brazilian cliche. Uh-huh. It's not that tropical. Mm-hmm. It's subtropical, uh-huh. uh, kind of climate, weather. Mm-hmm. It's really it's close to Argentina and Uruguay, so we have a lot of, in common with those. This. Two countries in terms of culture and I don't know a lot of cowboys and a lot of a lot of dairy or or they're mostly beef cows and stuff. Yeah, a lot of beef cows. Mm-hmm. We have wonderful meat, mm-hmm. which I I miss a lot mm-hmm. here. <laughs> what else? Yeah, we have this like cowboy version, mm-hmm. uh, gaucho. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's what we're called people. Who are born in the state of Rio Grande do Sul are called gaúchos. How, we don't big, how feel big is Porto Alegre? 
it's it's big, a uh, million and a half oh, okay. people. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's probably like growing up in Latin American mm-hmm. town, uh, mm-hmm. or yeah, I don't know, Chile and Argentina. We had a very rock culture in the '90s in Porto Alegre. Mm-hmm. You mean like so, rock and roll culture? Yeah, rock uh-huh. and roll, mm-hmm. like samba and Brazilian music. It's kind of new in, in Porto Alegre, I guess. Mm-hmm. Even Carnaval wasn't a big thing. Mm-hmm. Some decades ago yeah that is also something i would associate with brazil as carnival uh-huh. and all the you know the the women with the giant costumes and they look like big birds and stuff but that's yeah. not so much in puerto alegre no no mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. no it's yeah it's not we feel i think you probably have thought about this in reading the book we feel not as brazilians as someone in Rio, I mm-hmm. guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have some identity issues. <laughs> yeah, I see. <laughs> yeah. What kind of uh, stuff did you do as a kid? What were some of the things you were interested in as a child? Well, it was a very urban setting, mm-hmm. so I feel kind of frustrated with that, mm-hmm. growing up in a big city mm-hmm. in Latin America, and we couldn't do things i mean it's sort of dangerous so you go to a mall or something but you don't play in the street and so i had this kind of childhood sort of sad but (laughs) (laughs) did you read a lot were you like an intellectual child and yes Mm -hmm. yes Mm -hmm. I, i read a lot and I travel a lot with my parents, like in Europe. Mm-hmm. And well, what kind of things did your parents do for a living? They're both uh, physicians. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, great. Oh, uh-huh. good. What, what are their specialties? Um, my dad is urologist. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And my mother is a dermatologist. Oh, great. Uh-huh. Yeah. So... Yeah, that was it about my childhood. Did you have I, brothers I, and sisters? No. No, uh-huh. I was going to say exactly that. I that, see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm a little bit shy, and I spend a lot of time by myself reading mm-hmm. and creating fictional <laughs> things. Did, did you early on become interested in writing? Did you write little stories as like a young girl? Yes. Oh, uh, you did? Uh, murder stories. Oh, really? Thrillers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when did you write your first murder story? How old were you? I don't know, 12, 13. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh-huh. Yeah, but uh-huh. then I decided to study advertising, which was sort of a, a crazy thing to do. Then I study um, creative writing. And so you moved from advertising into creative writing. Yeah, uh-huh. but it, it was really um, a new thing in Brazil. It was the only creative writing MFA in Brazil mm-hmm. when I did it. And where was that? It says PUCRS. I don't. I don't know which name yeah. university that is. But could, which one? Where was that? In Porto Alegre. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I see. And then it says literary theory. So you went on for a master's degree. Where you were already writing stories, and was the creative writing was your emphasis, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, mm-hmm. because it 
it was related with uh, literary theory, but mm -hmm. it was a creative writing thing. But mm -hmm. but in the university, it was not uh, like a separated thing. Mm -hmm. Now it is. Yeah. Yeah. Who were some of your favorite writers at that point in your life? Wow. I have very close relation with uh, American writers, actually. I see. Yeah. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Like Faulkner. Oh, yeah. And John Dos Passos. Uh -huh. I know he's, he's not that well-known, I think, yeah. but I love the USA trilogy. Yeah, that's a very famous one. I've actually never read that one. And no. I know in the 20th century, he was very popular for the first half of mm -hmm. the 20th century. But I actually I know about Dos Passos, but I haven't read that yeah, one. Yeah, and Richard Yates. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, American realism. Now, Lucia Berlin mm -hmm. and Alice Munro. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that she's from Canada, but... <laughs> yeah, North America. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great, uh-huh. Yeah. Uh -huh. So, by you, did you get a master's degree? Did you uh, yes, get, go I ahead did. and got one? And that was in literary theory. Yeah, uh -huh. and then I started a PhD in France. Yeah. But I quit. After uh, a couple of years? Now, you uh -huh, went to the Sorbonne, I, right? Uh-huh. Uh -huh. So, this is, of course, the famous university in Paris. Tell us about that time at the Sorbonne and your PhD program and so forth. Yeah, I wanted to live in Paris, but I didn't want to write a thesis, I guess. Uh-huh, right. <laughs> so, in Europe, uh, I think it's different from here. The, the PhD, you don't have to take courses. Mm -hmm. You just have to write the thesis, mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. So, I spent two years not doing much, and then <laughs> <laughs> just, yeah, just living Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I had to write a thesis, and mm -hmm. so it got complicated. I wasn't. I prefer to to write fiction, mm -hmm. so sure. I would stay two or three years writing a thesis, and mm -hmm. I thought it wasn't a good idea after all. What was your life like in Paris? Did you uh, did you mostly? hang around cafes and stuff or were you always reading and researching or a combination or well i was i was there with my boyfriend mm -hmm. he was doing a phd in literature too oh, i see also a brazilian uh-huh mm -hmm. so we live in a very small studio as you can imagine mm -hmm. sure <laughs> it was really cold and gray the problem is not the cold. I mean, uh, the problem is that you don't get much sun. Right. And yeah, it is overcast much of the time. It is yeah. gray in the sky. Yeah, I read something in the newspaper the other day. I, I think it was January 10th. And then there was this story about just in Paris, they got just four minutes of sun since New Year's Eve, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, four minutes. Yeah, I mean, yeah. uh, so it's it's complicated. But I love Paris. It's yeah, I nice. love Paris, too. I can't say enough. It's To me, it's like adult Disneyland. And I don't mean mm -hmm. Disneyland in, like, it's toys and, and kitchen and things like that. I mean there's so much to do and so many wonderful things catch your eye. And so many wonderful tastes. Yeah. And all, you know. Yeah, it's very adult, really. It is. It very is. Yeah, it's, it's not adult. for young people. I was 
sort of young, but I didn't feel young. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, it makes you feel sophisticated in a way, Paris. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And uh, yeah, even yeah. if you buy a two euro wine, and <laughs> yeah, sure, yeah, <laughs> it's sophisticated. Yeah. yeah. So you speak good French, and you speak English, and you speak Portuguese. Do you speak any other languages too? No, I didn't. Uh, well, actually, okay, French. It, it's my second language okay. actually because mm-hmm. of my. Family, mm-hmm. they have a weird story. To uh, the Ben, tell us the Ben Simon yeah, story, okay. please. Yes. So uh-huh. it's my mother's name. Mm-hmm. She was born in Alexandria, Egypt. Wow. It's a Sephardic Jew mm-hmm. last name. Uh-huh. They went to Brazil. My my grandparents, my mother, and all the family in nineteen fifty seven. Okay. Mm-hmm. They were expelled of Egypt. Because, oh, yeah. yeah During be- Nasser's time. Yeah. Yes. That's okay. exactly. Mm-hmm. So they had the Suez Canal War and Nasser expelled uh, Jewish people, English people, and French. That That's why they went to Brazil, mm-hmm. which... It sounds like an adventure. <laughs> yeah, it sounds I like mean, an adventure. It's a forced adventure, though. So yeah. in the sense of like, you know, them mm-hmm. smacking your family. Were your parents angry that they were forced out? Well, maybe they were at the time. But did they come to see opportunity in Brazil and enjoy their transition to Brazil? Yeah, probably. I don't know because my grandfather didn't speak that much about it, uh-huh. about being expelled probably he saw a business opportunity mm-hmm. or that kind of thing and he wasn't very interested in going to israel for example because mm-hmm. in that way they will be in the middle of the conflict sure i mean mm-hmm. so brazil was an option and a land of opportunity, in a way, you know, for uh-huh. maybe for the Ben Simons at the time. Are your parents still alive? My parents, yeah. yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're st- they're still doctors, then, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. But my mother was four years old when when oh, yeah. when she made that trip to Brazil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about where's your dad from? From Brazil, yeah, Portuguese uh-huh. family, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, so- and. Some relatives in Uruguay, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're kind of a classic Brazilian mix. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, you, you have people coming from other areas. I think especially of southern Brazil as lots of Germans, lots of Italians. Yeah, and of course, the, there Port- was a yeah. 19th century immigration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most yeah. Italians and Germans yeah. in that area. Although I think nowadays it's <clears throat> different in terms mm-hmm. of immigration i mean there's more brazilians outside brazil than than immigrants mm-hmm. coming to brazil right now mm-hmm. so. do you think that that's just the way it's been or do you think that's especially true because of contemporary politics uh, you bolsonaro? mean bolsonaro <laughs> yes of course yes i think it will get worse in uh, that sense mm-hmm. but it's it's something that's happening i mean there's mm-hmm. always an economic crisis and people go to Europe seeking better opportunities and jobs. Mm-hmm. It's sort of sad. Yeah, yeah, we'll yeah. talk we'll But talk people more about are, are, yeah, leaving. I mean, 
people that I know, they're, they don't want to be in Brazil right now. Sure. Mm. Well, you know, I when we went to your book opening mm-hmm. at the Gallery Bookshop here in Mendocino, I asked you what it was like now that Bolsonaro is, and, and you said, you know, it's a lot like here mm-hmm. with your government, with Trump in office and so on. And um, I, I remember thinking, yeah, it's this feeling of like everything, they're trying to change everything. Please correct me if you think mm-hmm. it's different. The government is trying to change everything. The population is trying to block them from changing it. But it's moving in a direction, whether we like it or not. Do you have a similar feeling with Bolsonaro? Yes. Mm-hmm. I think it's similar. For example, Twitter. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, Bolsonaro loves to tweet. Uh-huh. And I feel it, it, it's so embarrassing that a president would say things like and make jokes and yeah. I, I heard uh, Trump was telling jokes about global warming oh yeah because <laughs> it's crazy yeah it is crazy yes <laughs> yes what's the uh, Portuguese word for crazy loco oh it's loco yeah. it's like yeah. espanol that's yeah. great yeah yeah. And yeah so yeah and there's this feeling of censorship now oh yeah mm-hmm. I don't know that if mm. you get this here with Trump but you know for 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 me the it's not so much censorship as it is this talk of fake news mm-hmm. it's like they're trying to confuse us mm-hmm. and his followers believe in these different kinds of fake news that he puts out that is happening in brazil too mm-hmm. like he tweets a thing and then someone from the government has to say no it's not like that mm-hmm. so i assume he's like signing things that mm-hmm. he doesn't mm-hmm. read. <laughs> yeah, it's, sure. Yeah, it's completely crazy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So and I, there was a change in in guns law. Oh, really? You yeah. have? Oh, do you yeah. have? Do they have so much access to guns in Brazil, like in the United States? He's trying to facilitate that oh. access in order oh. to oh. come. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I saw is that he had a very nasty attitude towards the indigenous population here. Mm-hmm. That they should either disappear or they will be taken out. And, and they were, he was talking about arming ranchers to fight the indigenous population. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. I read about that which, you know, I mean, that's like militarizing the populace against itself. Can I ask you some questions about your writing then? Since yeah, uh, we've been talking course. politics, really, uh-huh. which is always interesting to me. <laughs> but in addition to talking about We All Loved Cowboys, which we will soon, I read an interview with you in McSweeney's magazine where mm-hmm. you talk about writing crime fiction and you have the background of the demonstrations against the 2014 World Cup in your home city of Porto Alegre. Now, we all know that the World Cup took place in Brazil in 2014. You seem good at describing the realities, what you were demonstrating against, and still building a story. How do you work to uh, place your story into a context? Like, for example, the World Cup demonstrations are happening. You want to tell us, how do you as mm-hmm. a writer work on that? Even though I, I started to write I wrote crime stories mm-hmm. when I was a teenager. Right, right. I 
I don't consider myself familiar with crime stories and thrillers or, I don't know, mm-hmm. noir. So when I got this invitation, I was sort of, oh, how do I do this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... I was thinking about that background, political background, because it was very recent. Mm -hmm. And the demonstrations were sort of crazy because it started, there was this World Cup thing, like, oh, Brazilian government is spending a lot of money building stadiums, but people don't have like a health care system that works and schools, etc. But there was this thing about bus tickets too, mm-hmm. a raise in... Mm-hmm. Oh, they were raising the price of the bus price. tickets? Yeah. I see. So like, that was affecting poor people. Yeah, so it all went crazy. And in Porto Alegre specifically, they were, they mm-hmm. were cutting trees Mm-hmm. to to make this huge avenue it was a world cup thing too mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so people were protesting yeah so i thought it was a a great background to a sort of crime story mm-hmm. because there was this really tense thing and Mm. people would say that there was some cops infiltrated cops in the middle of the so all this paranoia and what is the violence too did you end up with a short story or a little novel or a novella or what did you end up with on this particular one that they're talking about in McSweeney's yeah it's a short story Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm What do you think is the difference between a short story and a novella? Because I I don't know Mm. exactly. Well, you know, (coughs) not being a professional writer like you, I think to myself, if it's a short story, I would just think of the size, you know. Mm -hmm. Novella, maybe 90, 100 pages, maybe something like that. Okay. And a short story, maybe 15 to 35 pages. What do you think, Ken? I've never (laughs) understood that myself. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I look at some short stories that are longer than novellas. Mm Mm-hmm. And yet I've seen some novellas that seem shorter than short stories. So, yeah. you know, I, mm-hmm. I think there is maybe a little bit of uh, uh, status accorded to a novella over yeah. a short mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. But, but why, is this know. a new thing? Novella? Yeah. You know, term. when I first read a novella that I remember, mm-hmm. it was Thomas Mann, the German writer. Mm-hmm. And I was studying German at university, and they said, you will be reading a novella. And I thought, oh, that must be a little novel, you <laughs> uh-huh. know? And uh, so anyway, and he wrote Death in Venice and a variety of other ones. And I had a book collection from Thomas Mann uh-huh. that I read a series of these novellas. And uh-huh. they were all around, you know, 80 to 120 uh-huh. pages, something like that. So I thought, okay. They felt like... A developed novel, but shorter. Yeah, this is interesting because short stories in, in Brazil are really... They're smaller than than here in the U.S. Oh. So we have like a three-page short story, mm-hmm. but I can't do it anymore. I mean, I, I prefer to write longer short stories. Yeah. So you you're you're heading more when you start down to write do you usually have it in mind I want to write a novel? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nowadays it's difficult to think about a a short story. I want to develop things mm-hmm. slower. Mm-hmm. I'm that kind of 
person. No, I'm I'm <laughs> I'm fascinated by it. You know, I gotta say, I just read We All Loved Cowboys. Mm-hmm. I believe so far it's the only book to be translated in English, mm-hmm. right? I enjoyed it very much, and I liked all kinds of aspects of it. But one was traveling around southeastern Brazil. I think I mentioned this to you before when I went to your book opening. You say in this interview, I mentioned earlier, I believe all stories have to say something about a particular place. And in one part of the book, you call this, we all love cowboys, our gaucho tour. I'm just curious, what do you think We All Love Cowboys has to say about your area that you grew up, this southeastern Brazil? I, I mentioned to you one more thing before you answer. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I followed your characters as oh, they moved around southern really? Brazil. I followed them around a Google map. Mm-hmm. And so I got a chance to see. I didn't know anything about this part of mm-hmm. Brazil. So what do you think it tells us about uh, this part of Brazil? Well, I think... Even the characters, Cora and Julia, mm-hmm. they are sort of foreigners in their own place. Uh-huh. Don't you have that mm-hmm. feeling when yes. you Yes. So myself I was I was living in Paris mm-hmm. when I started to think about that this novel and I was sort of thinking that I didn't know my my state very well because In Brazil, it's not like here. You travel a lot Mm -hmm. in the U.S., but we're not. This is not a Brazilian thing to to go and visit other regions. And so you mentioned the Amazon. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've never been to the Amazon, and my friends never ever been to the Amazon. So it's not a. I think it's expensive, and the the roads aren't that good as here so i was feeling that i didn't know even my own state i was thinking about i was wondering what it means to be brazilian and to be a gaucho and did you go on a tour like this yourself that that cara and julia go on yeah but i mean it's not a biographical novel i know i know that (laughs) i was uh, doing that trips to write the book, I made I think two different separated mm-hmm. trips because I wanted to visit the places I was describing. Of course, it's impossible to do it otherwise. Yeah, and there's some mixed up stories about my years in college and people I, I met. I also like that it goes back and forth from. When the character is in Paris, and mm-hmm. then she thinks about her time in Brazil, and I think there's time jumps where she, I can't remember, she had been in Paris previously, and then now she's in Brazil later. That's mm-hmm. mostly how it works. Mm-hmm. I, can't, I don't think both Cara and Julia had been in Paris, right? Only one. The, the narrator is... is yeah, Cara is in was in Paris and Julia mm. was in Montreal. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yes, of course. Mm-hmm. Both French-speaking places. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And then they come back to Brazil to do that trip together. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed the, the traveling part. And um, I also learned, uh, uh, I also liked learning about Brazil in general. Uh-huh. And about the relationship between the two women because... You know, relationships are relationships, and there's jealousy, and there's worrying about the other person. One of the things 
that seems to be true is, I can't remember, I think it's Kara who worries that she likes Julia more than Julia likes her. Mm -hmm. This is an ongoing thing in the book. You know, that kind of stuff, that's universal. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. that's that's universal. It doesn't have anything to do with straight or gay or mm-hmm. anything. It's just the kind of stuff. I thought that was really well done. That wow, I learned thanks. a lot about, you know, about relationships. I also thought there's a great line in there. Mm-hmm. I went with guys out of inertia, girls out of fascination. Uh-huh. And I, I mean, I don't mean to be prying, but I'm just curious, that line, I, I, could you talk a little bit about that line? Yeah, it's when she's talking about her sexuality and right. her mm-hmm. past uh, with guys mm-hmm. and girls. What can I say? She's a bisexual, technically, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but she's more interested in girls. She mm-hmm. falls in love with girls and mm-hmm. not as much uh, with guys. I mean, she's completely okay with that. Julia, it's not that okay. I mean, she came f- uh, she has a different family background, more conservative because she's from the countryside. So she had this thing with Cora when they were both uh, in the university, but in college, yeah, she doesn't want to discuss it and she's very how do you say close close and she she hides it from her family too yeah and that um cara would like it if she was able to visit the family her her uh, julia's family but then julia's too busy hiding it yeah so i wanted to explore that tension yeah i got (laughs) i mean i got that i felt that was really well expressed and I felt sorry, you mm-hmm. know, because you do, because you always... I mean, I don't know about... Um, I mean, that kind of thing, you're always rooting... I root for romance. Mm-hmm. And when I was reading the book, you always... I was rooting for Kara to get what she wanted. Mm-hmm. And um, and at the end, you kind of leave it... It's kind of existential at the end. You're not quite sure. Is that correct? Am, mm-hmm. I, am I remembering that right? Yeah. You mean it's an... Open, open ending. Open know? ending, yeah. not quite sure yeah, what I will like happen. Yeah, I like that kind of ending. I appreciated that, and I also understood that that was a real ending, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to tying everything together like Walt Disney or something. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's so hard to write the ending. And also to know how do you start the story. Because in my first draft, I was trying to start in Paris, actually. But then I thought it was a bad idea, and I moved this chapter to the middle of the book. Hmm. Uh, Because it was, yeah, I think it was more interesting to begin with the beginning of the trip. Yeah. The road trip. It was very interesting. (laughs) And it does take you here and there, and it makes me want to go down there and visit. So you you went on all of those... um, on all those levels. Yeah. I was going to say, too, um, one of my favorite things about We All Love Cowboys, and these, of course, are translated into English from Portuguese. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite things was your use of metaphors and analogies and the way you describe things or people for the reader. I have some examples, mm-hmm. and I know they're in English, but I just give them to you because I recognize these these things. And they're they're described, but... It's almost like I hadn't heard this description before. 
She started laughing like one of those people who chuckle alone as they walk. Uh, I am actually one of those kind of people, so <laughs> I like <Right>. that one. <laughs> Anytime you want to comment on it. Uh, and here's another one I like. It was as if you'd spent months thinking about whether to dye your hair blue, and suddenly you realize that all the time spent deliberating, analyzing, imagining has ended up completely satisfying your desire to rebel, <laughs> which I also got that too. You know, it's kind of like, it's it's a little bit like the teenager mind uh -huh. in action, you know? Mm -hmm. Anyway, you read that uh, out loud. I went, do you have anything to add to that? Or just, <laughs> I, did you did you enjoy, I mean, I can imagine that person. <gasps> yes, I did. I did. <laughs> I, I, now, this was also great, I thought. I think she has the air of those people who feel prematurely proud of the brilliant future they imagine for themselves. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was great. And we, go ahead. Yeah, I like to do this sort of comparison because I write that and then you can just imagine that person with just a phrase, a sentence. So I, I think it works. It works, yes. But I have to be aware that I can do this all the time, you know. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you find these an, an, uh, metaphors, analogies coming, these comparisons coming easily to you? Mm-hmm, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Which is sort of, how can I say it? There's a f funny tone mm -hmm. when you use this kind mm -hmm. of thing. Sometimes mm -hmm. I'm not interested in uh, having that tone. Mm -hmm. I mean, in this book, I think it works. But in the book I wrote that it's set in Mendocino, I try to sort of avoid that. Oh, you did? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, well, we'll talk about that soon, too. Can you say that title in, Brazil, in uh, Portuguese, the, the one about Mendocino? Clube dos Jardineiros de Fumaça. Uh, this is the, the club of the House of Smoke or something the like that? The Smoke Gardeners Club. Uh, the Smoke Gardeners Club. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we'll talk about this momentarily, but uh -huh. I want to just finish some of these other quotes. Um, yeah, go on. Because... <laughs> um, Now, this was another one of my uh, faves. She was the girl who raised her hand to ask a question with five minutes to go before the end of class. I was often one of these people, too, I have to admit. So um, I, my curiosity would get the better of me, and then somebody would go, oh, not him. You know what I mean? Right. So we all knew who you were talking about. We all knew these kind of people. Were you like that, too, or I'm just curious? Were you one of those people? Who, no, mm -hmm. I was too embarrassed and shy to ask questions mm -hmm. in the middle of the oh, class. Yeah. So you were you a shy kid then? Yeah, oh, I mm -hmm. was. I mm -hmm. mean, I had a lot of friends, and I wasn't that shy, but with public things, mm -hmm. like uh, in class, mm -hmm. I, was, mm -hmm. I was really shy. Mm -hmm. I didn't graduate. I mean, I, I didn't participate at this ceremony. Mm -hmm. because the graduation I, ceremony? Yeah, mm -hmm. the graduation ceremony, because I was too shy to get uh, on stage. And hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, here you are, and then writing, <laughs> writing all these things later. To, here's another one. Young men drove around aimlessly in cars. I think it's safe to say that their di idea of youth consisted largely of aerodynamics, shiny hubcaps, and huge sound systems in their trunks. Do you have this here? Oh, yes, yes. we do. <laughs> and we have had it since, well, it's probably since our dads were driving, you know. Uh -huh. And a, having a big radio was a big deal. And in, our, in Ken and my time as teenagers, it would have been a radio. 
And and then this this might be my favorite, although there are a lot of favorites. If that building were a person, it could only have been a very dignified gentleman with a walking stick and some macabre ideas in his head. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm imagining this building... I'm imagining what this building looks like, and you can sort of eat a little bit of things falling off of it. Yeah. And, you know. Have you looked for it in yeah. the internet? Uh, that- uh, no, is there actually a building that's. Did you show that? Yeah, it's a hotel. Uh huh. In Portuguese, Cavalinho Branco would be Little White Horse. Little White Horse, okay. <laughs> So this yeah. is this in Porto Alegre? No, it's in the mountains. Okay, little white horse. <laughs> well, that sounds great. I I really could. I was imagining the building, but I wasn't quite sure. So um, anyway, I love those. And you say for this book, these metaphors, analogies. What is the right word? I'm thinking. I guess comparisons. comparisons yeah, uh-huh. these come naturally to you for this book. Do you? A lot of times write these things down and keep keep a notebook with these kind of... No, unfortunately, no. I'm not that kind of person that... Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not like, I don't know, having dinner with you and then mm-hmm. I suddenly mm-hmm. I have an idea and I wrote it down. Mm-hmm. Usually I'm sweat when I'm actually working that it come to it comes to my mind oh, right then of, yeah right in the moment uh-huh yeah. right in the moment mm-hmm. i make plans like structure and chapter like general things and actions that will happen in a certain mm-hmm. chapter mm-hmm. but this little details they, they just come mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm kind of interested in this yeah. again can you speak? So you work with an outline, more or less? You have, like, your chapters set up and a general idea of what you're going to accomplish in each chapter? Yeah. I'm Now I'm working with that. I, I mean, when I'm writing a novel, it's really easy to lose control <laughs> yeah. because it's a huge amount of text. So, yeah. so I have a general idea of what's going to happen in each chapter. But I don't know, for example, how the book's going to end. I have... Uh, th- there's this great metaphor. I think it's from Alan Pose, mm-hmm. which is a Argentinian writer. He said writing a novel is like driving a car with your lights on, and then you only... You, you see some foot meters mm-hmm. in advance, yeah. but... It's a little bit like driving in the fog. <laughs> you know you're on the road, but it's still in the distance, and sometimes it's too foggy to know where you're going. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's classic, yeah. <laughs> well, um, I, I really lie, I loved We All Love Cowboys, and I very much um, look forward to the next one. Could you once again say what it, what's the projected title in English, the one that's about Mendocino? The Smoke Gardeners Club. The Smoke Gardeners Club. Now, do you know when that will come out in English? No, I don't. Okay. I had an, an excerpt published in Washington Square Review okay. last year. Now, because this is about the Mendocino area, you came here to... It, it, correct? Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. You came here to do research. How long ago? Maybe a year ago or longer? Two years ago. Two years I ago. came twice, actually. In 2015, I spent uh, two months, and then I came back in 2000. 
16, 17, mm -hmm. to spend six months. Can you give us a sort of idea about it without giving mm -hmm. away too much? Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm very, we're very curious. Well, it's about this this guy. He's from Brazil, 30-something. He's a history teacher in high school. And his mother has cancer, and then he starts growing uh, marijuana. And then he his house is busted, and he loses his job. And then he said... Uh, to his dad that he's going to to do a PhD in Berkeley, but actually he wants to come to Mendocino and get involved with marijuana industry. So this is the main character, but actually there's other characters and they are as much important as Arthur, the Brazilian guy, mm -hmm. is. There's Tamara, who's a waitress, and Sylvia, who's a retired teacher from L.A., he rents a room in her place. And there's this old hippie called Dusk. Yeah, so it's about, I don't know, love and family and conflicts of generations and authenticity and a lot of things, not just about the marijuana industry. Well, you know, that's the thing. It'll be like, um, you know, I guess like we all love cowboys. The road trip, but mm -hmm. it's about the characters yeah. and all oh. the pressures on the characters. In this one, it'll be the marijuana growing in Northern California, uh -huh. but it'll be about Arthur and all the other characters and what they go. But anyway. Yeah, and I forgot to mention that there's also this uh, historical chapters trying to tell the story about marijuana and marijuana prohibition. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so this sort of little biographical little, uh, chapters mm -hmm. about, I don't know, Harry Anslinger, who was the anti-drug czar. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. And Dennis Perron, who was an activist, mm -hmm. And a guy who was the first, he has a glaucoma and oh, he yeah. got... Relief from... Yeah, the, he was the first person uh, to be allowed to use marijuana and the, the United States government actually was giving him marijuana mm -hmm. for him to use it as yeah. a treatment. This was in, in the early 70s because they had a farm in... I can't remember now if it's Tennessee. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, mm -hmm. hippies growing marijuana in Tennessee. No, no, but I no. mean a oh, government farm. Oh, I see. Yeah. Oh, I didn't mm -hmm. know about that. The government had legal marijuana growing back in the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. Supposedly to do research, then they never did any research. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of interesting and crazy stories. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things I like about reading generally is even if I'm reading a novel, the novelist often educates me about different things. Uh -huh. So, for example, the way you did about Southern Brazil, I suspect this book will be educating us about a lot of things. That I think Ken and I are fairly conversative with the history of marijuana in the United States, but there will always be stuff I don't mm -hmm. know. And I bet you I will learn. So when the Smoke Gardeners Club uh, comes out, 
I promise you, there will be quite a few of us who will be looking forward to reading it. I did mention the title to some people at the book reading that I said, oh, she's worked on a book about this area. Mm -hmm. They were totally charmed by that title. They thought that was the greatest title. (laughs) Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. I think you have a, I think you have good potential commercially with Uh this, you know, and I wish that for you, but you never know. And I know life is full of gambling, so you never know. But I bet you, you have a good shot at this. Yeah, thank you. There's a challenge because you're not very used to read translated literature. Mm-hmm. There's even a site, it's called a website, it's called, I think, 3% talking about translated literature because it's only 3% of all things, all oh, really? books published in the US. Oh. In Brazil, it's, it's the opposite. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have a lot of translations, of course. Uh-huh. Because, yeah, Brazilian literature is not enough. <laughs> uh-huh. I mean, so I think this is uh, maybe it's changing. Do you have that feeling that it's mm-hmm. changing? I would like there to be more um, cosmopolitan, international, mm-hmm. you know. I, I think that would be good. I don't know if you think, it, what do you think it's changing or not? Well, unfortunately, I think with the make America great again type people. Mm-hmm. They don't want anything to do with anything. Yeah, no. They don't care about books anyway, they. but there's that. <laughs> they, are, <laughs> they are only a small portion of this country, though. The, the, the majority of people are much more open, I think. There's resistance even to movies that have subtitles. Mm-hmm. People don't want to go to a foreign movie because they say, oh, I can't read while I watch. I love foreign movies. Me too. I love to. They have some of the best cinema. I mean, French cinema mm-hmm. is just uh, yeah, not sure. good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think there may be, because uh, you know, we're becoming more international, the internet has made us more mm-hmm. of a, a community. And hopefully that we do change, because we need that. We need that. I think that kind of diversity and that kind of... You're coming here and being able to fit into the community as well as you did. I, the reaction of people to your reading was really, really good. People were very fascinated by it. <laughs> and I think you really... Uh, I think it's great that you're doing that. And you're bringing it, and you come here and you research this area. She was here for months and going around to different places. You know, you came to Mendocino to to do the research, and now you and Melissa, you have moved here, right? Mm -hmm. So you are living here. So when you came here, what are the things that kind of attracted you to this area that made you think, I kind of want to live here now? It was nature Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. people... I think I wanted to live in a small community and see how it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, have a different pace in mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. I was tired of cities yeah. and noise and the speed of everything. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to change. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we're glad to have you here. I think it's great. And uh, just so you know... Uh, Carol and Melissa have a beautiful little cabin here with a big giant redwood tree outside. <laughs> and I suspect it's different in Brazil, especially the part you came from. But also, you know, I would like to go to Brazil and visit your place too. Just yeah. so you know, I think Ken would yeah, too. Yeah, of so, course. You know. so, um, you're more than welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I think that'd be great. Right now you're here. You're going to try it out and see for a while and... Could you imagine yourself being here for a long time? Yes, I can. Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. mean, I will go to Brazil often because Mm -hmm. I have a family and a 
career. Mm-hmm. But I can imagine, yes, being here most of the time, yeah. Great. Good. Well, we're lucky. And like I said, I very much look forward to the Smoke Gardeners And Club. we're very spoiled here because we have a wonderful bookstore yeah. in a really mm-hmm. small town mm-hmm. and uh, grocery store, great grocery stores and mm-hmm. and theater and events. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, we're glad to have you. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, one more question uh, about Mate. Okay. Because I know, um, I mean, there's lots of questions I could ask you about Brazil generally, but when I got, when we got here, you offered us mate, which is a famed drink in southern Brazil and uh, Argentina, northern Argentina, or I don't know, maybe all over Argentina. Yeah, I think all over Argentina. I have heard Argentinians rating it way over coffee. What makes it so special? And could you describe, you made mate for us, and Mm -hmm. it's really quite a little ceremony. If you could yes, tell us a little is. bit about the, the Carol Ben Simone version of mate. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, well, actually, I drink mate every day. Mm-hmm. It's part of my writing ritual, too. But in general, it's a very social thing in southern Brazil. It's So you drink, and then you pass to your friend, and everyone drinks from the same... How do you say straw? straw mm-hmm. yeah. Which may be weird for mm-hmm. you, <laughs> but and yeah, that's it. It's uh, very the cup is special too, isn't it? The yeah, gourd. Yeah, it's yeah, kind of like it, a gourd. Yeah, actually, it comes from a tree. I don't know which kind of tree. Mm-hmm. So, I think uh, it is related to to the Indians of South America. Native people Mm -hmm. uh, used to drink mate, and then now it is like a very strong cultural thing in southern Brazil and Argentina and Uruguay. I have this gourd where you're not seeing it, but (laughs) it's uh, pretty small. It looks like an Argentinian gourd, which is... Uh, a little bit different of a Brazilian one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like a gourd, and on the top it's got like a, a lip of silver or a, a metal. Mm-hmm. And then she put the mate in and pushed it to over to one side. And then she poured the hot water in on the side that's open, and the water comes up to the top. And then... I drank until the water was gone, but I wasn't supposed to move the straw mm-hmm. because that way I'd get too much sort of mate debris in there. <laughs> and then I drank that, and then she fills it up with hot water again, and then somebody else drinks. It was really quite an interesting, and it tastes like a really smoky tea. Do you know of. that there's a Californian brand of mate? No, I didn't. Know yeah, uh-huh. it's in. They're based in Sebastopol. Mm. And there's even a mate cafe or something. Oh, really? It's very, very interesting. You will have to go there. Yeah. Then. Yes, and then you can say, okay, let's see what you have. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was going to say, we have had a wonderful time talking with you, and I thoroughly look forward to the Smoke Gardeners Club. I have been bragging about We All Loved Cowboys. My wife is reading it now. 
Ken's wife is reading it. We'll Ken, get to it. And Ken will get to it soon so that we'll have all shared that. And then when the Smoke Gardeners Club comes out, it will be bought out at the Gallery Bookstore for sure. Oh. So, Carol, it's been a pleasure, and we thank you very well, much. Well, thank you. Thanks. Uh, obrigado. Anjonada. <laughs> thank you, Carol. Thanks to our artist of the show, Carol Ben-Simone. Thanks to our tech meister, Marshall Downtown Brown. And thanks to our jack-of-all-trades, Ken Krause. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Scour magazines. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again. <laughs>